You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. So we come to this passage in Esther that Tamara is going to read shortly, and we find that Esther has solved one problem, but there's a bigger problem to be solved. Yes, Haman, the enemy of the Jew, the arch enemy of the Jews, of God's people, is now dead. But the, the edict that Haman devised to destroy all of God's people in the empire was still law. So now let's hear how they will address this other major problem. Okay. So re- again, reading from Esther chapter 8 and on page 414 in your pew Bibles. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to the Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, when he wrote to destroy the Jews, who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at the time in the third month, which is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanding concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in their own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed forces of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On the day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted, the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service 
rode out hurriedly, urging, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy amongst the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for this passage in your holy scriptures. We pray now that as we look at uh, this passage, help us, Holy Spirit, encourage us, teach us, change us, challenge us. We pray for your sake and for your glory. Amen. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, many of you are familiar with Lord of the Rings. Help me to know who's all familiar with Lord of the Rings. Oh, not many of you. Have many of you seen the movies? All right, well, I'm going to give you some, some details. Well, the, the movie, is, or the books, obviously, in the movie as well, we see the journey of Frodo and Sam, Frodo's best friend, to destroy the ring that wielded much power. In fact, the title of the novel refers to the story's main antagonist, the Dark Lord of Sauron, who at an early age created the One Ring to rule the other rings of power as the ultimate weapon in the campaign to conquer and rule all of Middle-earth. So from the choir beginnings from the Shire, much like an uh, English countryside, begins this journey north to the Middle-earth, following the course of the War of the Rings through the eyes of the characters of, ho of the hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Miri, and Pippin, as well as their um, allies and traveling companions, Aragon, the human ranger soon, who would one day be king, Boromir, a man from Gondor, Gimli, the dwarf, and then also an elven, piece, elven, an elven prince, and then also Gandalf, the wizard. Throughout this book, and the, the books and the stories and the movies, you see the battle between good and evil. But also you see the negative impact that the ring has on Frodo. So towards the end of the journey, the last, one, of the, one of the last scenes of the journey, in the books and also in the, in the movie, you see the metal weight of the ring's corrupting influence and how it weakens Frodo more and more as they near Mount Doom, the place where they're going to destroy the ring. But we also see Sam being faithful and caring for his friend. So meanwhile, in order for Sam and Frodo to have a chance to cross Mordor safely and to destroy the ring, Aragon, who would one day be king, leads the remaining soldiers to march on the Black Gate of Mordor. In the climactic battle, the vastly outnumbered alliances of Gondor and Rohan fight desperately against Sauron's armies with the intent of diverting Sauron's attention from Mount Doom. At the edge of the cracks of doom, Frodo is unable to resist the ring and claims it for himself. Gollum suddenly appears. Gollum also had the ring many, many times before. He's been helping them in that journey well, but he, he has an evil influence, right? He falls into fire as he bites the ring off of Frodo's finger. And as he falls, he then destroys the ring as well as himself. And with the destruction of the one ring... 
Sauron punishes, pun, uh, perishes along with others, and his armies are thrown into confusion. However, their problems aren't over yet. In fact, in the book, which the movie does not show, we see that Saruman, the wicked wizard, escapes captivity and enslaves the Shire. The four hobbits, upon returning to the Shire, raise a rebellion and overthrow him. Sauron is killed by his former servant, who in turn is killed by Merry and Pippin, and they are claimed as heroes. Why am I sharing this story? Well, much like Esther 7, we see that there was a they solved one of the problems, right? Here, they solved one of the problems, but there was a bigger problem that needed to be solved. See, the Jews were still under the edict of Haman's to be completely destroyed. So both Hester and Esther and the Lord of the Rings remind me of the spiritual battle that we are all in. That often we deal with one problem, but there may be a bigger problem that needs to be resolved. Think of our times in our lives. We often address that one problem. Maybe it be anger or jealousy or gossip, right? And we, we figure, well, I'm going to try harder to, to stop those things. Or we read a book about 10 ways to, to deal with those things, but we never get to the deeper heart issues. What is driving me to anger? What is causing me to lust? Why, why am I so jealous, right? We don't go to the bigger problem. And so with this chapter, I want us to be encouraged that this chapter gives us some help in dealing with our bigger problem. And what are they? Well, first of all, I want us to look at how God reverses the destinies of his people. The second thing I want us to understand is that God destroys sin and evil. And then lastly, God equips us in our spiritual war. Let's first look at verses 1 and 2 and verses 15 and 17, and we see how God reverses the destinies of his people. There's probably no better illustration in the Bible of the phrase, pride becomes before a fall, than in Haman's fall. Remember Haman, full of self-importance. He had an idol that he wanted people to find him significant, especially Mordecai, which led him to his death. But very sobering, is it not? But what we see in his fall is that God is setting in motion a sequence of reversals for his people. What do I mean? Look, first of all, we see in this passage that Haman's property is now given to who? To Esther, right? Esther was, was, was considered a traitor, and now his property is, is for grabs. And so the king decides who, that, who he will give it to, and he gives it to Esther, the one who was wronged by Haman. But not only is, is Haman's property given to Esther, you know, to, to Haman's enemy, his own position, Haman's position is given to Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai was a thorn in his flesh. Mordecai is the one who would not bow down to Haman. The reason why they have this edict that to destroy God's people is because of Mordecai. And now, Esther, as he, she, his, she, as she immediately summons Mordecai into the presence of king, and the king tells the king about how they are related, the king immediately gives the same signet ring that Haman had once wore. And in this great reversal, Mordecai is vested with the power and authority previously yielded by Haman. Now it is to Mordecai. Not only that, additionally, Esther appoints Mordecai over all the wealth and property previously owned by Haman. Now, don't miss this. Haman 
Haman's plot was to destroy Mordecai leads to Mordecai acquiring both Haman's position and property. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 15. I'm going to skip 3 through 14 for a second. It says this, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king and wore robes of blue and white with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. You remember when Mordecai first heard that God's people were going to be destroyed? How did he dress? Do you remember? Sackcloth and ashes. Now, he, and, he, and, and how did he respond? He wept bitterly. He was crying. He was in distress, right? Now, as, as this counter-decree goes out, the reverse curves, right? What, how, what is Mordecai wearing now? He's wearing royal garments, garments from the king, a golden crown. And he goes throughout the city, not crying, but joyous in his possession. Mordecai, the Jew condemned, one of God's people condemned to death, has risen from sackcloth and ashes to take the royal position of one who had been condemned. But that doesn't stop there. We see now how, how God is using, he's reversing even the, the emotions of God's people. Look at, it says that, that he brought joy and gladness among God's people. The Jewish community who once responded to the first edict of death with four kinds of distress, right? Mourning, fasting, weeping and wailing in chapter 4, verse 3. Now how do they respond to the second edict of life? They respond in four kinds of delight. Light, gladness, joy, honor. See, the fasting and sorrow of chapter 4 turns into feasting and joy in chapter 8. God's people, their destinies are reversed. Mordecai's destiny is reversed. Esther's destiny is reversed but even has impact on those who don't, don't even know this God. It says in verse 17, many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now how ironic. No sooner had Esther conquered her fear and revealed that she was part of the people of God than many around her apparently chose to become part of God's people as well. Some may have truly converted Motivated to join God's people by fear of the Lord, the proper fear of the Lord. But others were probably motivated more by fear of the Jews and their new power and authority in the empire. Why is this such a big deal for us as Christians, to us to understand that God reverses our destiny? Who reverses our destiny? See, isn't it because of the person and work of Jesus, even specifically the cross of Jesus, that our destinies have been reversed? See, we were destined to hell. We are destined for a relation without God. And yet, because of Jesus and his death on the cross, he's given us a new place to live. We have a new heaven and a new earth to look forward to. He is preparing us for glory. That is a true statement today. We were talking about that in Sunday school class a little bit today on prayer. How God has a better story for us that one day that we'll be glorified with him. If you put your faith in Christ, you have this new destiny. You have a new heaven and new earth, and you're spared from hell. But not only that, we see that we, we are given a new position. As Mordecai was clothed with royal, royal robes and crowns, we who were once enemies of God, we were once separated from God because of Christ, the cross of Christ, we are now what? Sons and daughters. 
of God, robed, robed in his righteousness, robed with his glory, robed with his love, robed with all of Christ. And not only has he reversed and given us a new place to live in a new position, he's about turning our shame and our sorrow into glory and joy. What a God. What a God that he would be willing to reverse our destinies so that we can experience him and the life that he provides and be clothed with his righteousness, with his love, and with his goodness. And that he wants to turn our shame and sorrow into joy. But not only has he reversed our destinies, God has destroyed sin and evil. Look at verses 13 and 14. We see God's commitment to destroy sin and evil in Esther's desperate plea to the king to save her people. See, Esther still knows that her people are in danger of destruction. That decree needs to be solved with. That bigger problem needs to be solved. The king may still may think all is well since Haman is dead, but that is not the reality. So Esther, Esther falls at the king's feet to plead that he will overturn human's edict, Haman's edict. And again, the king extends his scepter, and he's delighted to hear her request. Now, she, again, appeals to the king's self-interest. Remember, the king, King Harasser, has no real moral compass. It's all about him. He has no sense of justice or of what are right or wrong. So Esther basically is saying to the king, if you really love me, if you really want me to be happy, you have to grant my request. Esther, Esther needed to help him realize that her people were just going to be destroyed and that she would be forever in great pain if that wasn't resolved. So the king's response shows that he doesn't really get what is really going on. He assumes that Esther would only be concerned for herself, much like him, but he finally sees that is not the case. And so he finally gives her and Mordecai permission to whatever they thought would, would it take to save their people. Even use my signet ring to authorize it. So that's what Mordecai did. He deliberately used language in his edict that echoed, echoed the original edict of Haman to highlight their parallel nature. What Mordecai edict mandated was measure for measure retaliation by the Jews against their enemies. They could kill those who attacked them along with their families and then plunder them just as their enemies had planned to kill God's people and their families in that empire and plunder them. This is not merely self-defense, but neither was it licensed for indiscriminate slaughter. They went beyond the decree if they initiated the slaughter. They were only to rage war if they were attacked first. What do we make of this? Are there questions that are, arise in your mind? They do in my mind. Does, this, does Scripture suggest that genocide is permissible and right when carried out by God's people? and wrong and evil when carried out by their enemies? Is there a moral double standard here? 
I like what one commentator says, and again, we need to put this in perspective. He says, to understand these events, we need to see what Mordecai was authorizing in his edict was, was a form of holy war. Haman's edict against the Jews, against God's people, was not merely a matter of personal animosity. It was an expression of old age enmity between the Amalekites and God's people. That connection is unaligned for us twice in this text by the designation of Haman as an Agite and the descendant of King Agai, who was the king of the Amalekites in the time of King Saul. Even in Saul's time, the conflict between the Israelites and Agites had been a long-standing enmity. Remember, we talked about how Saul, King Saul failed to do the job of destroying this primary enemy of God's people. In fact, the prophet Samuel had to intervene. See, their failure led to this present problem and trouble of God's people. So now Mordecai has now planned to finish what this ancient kingsman had left incomplete. The edict was a continuation of the same ongoing struggle of holy war. Now in a holy war, the Israelites acted as angels, listen to this, of God's righteous judgment against sinners and evil. We see that in Jericho, we see that in Sodom and Gomorrah, we see that in Noah's day, we see it in many, many Old Testament wars. In all these cases, hear me, the people were not destroyed because they happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, but because they were sinners and steadfastly opposed to God. So for God, a holy God, a gracious God, but a God who's holy and righteous, the sentence to such opposition is death. And it applies to all, regardless of age or gender. Remember as well that God did not always carry out his sentence immediately. God is a God of, who is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger, as we're reminded today. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to many. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He delights to always do that. But if people are continuing to grow in their evil, that needs to be punished in the Old Testament times. Now, this holy war was not executed just against non-Israelites. The holy war targets sinners for destruction, whatever their ethnic affiliation. God chose to use holy wars to advance his redemptive plan. One commentator says this, and I think it's helpful in explaining the phrases of holy war. God fights for Israel. God fights against Israel. God gives hope for future reconciliation. And these two are the most are very important. Jesus Christ is the divine warrior who ends holy wars on earth. Listen to me. Ends holy, Jesus Christ, the divine warrior who ends holy wars on earth. And the coming of Christ will destroy all evil doers. Karen Job says this. I know this is somewhat heavy. Sorry. It's Labor Day. We're not supposed to have a heavy message. <laughs> but I feel like we need to understand some of what's going on in this text to really kind of to apply it. So Karen Job says this, salvation necessarily implies destruction. Now listen to this. She says this, salvation's deepest significance is that people are actually saved from something both terrible and real. That something is the wrath of God directed towards our sin and evil. The violence of God against sin and evil can be rightly understood only in the shadow of the cross. Jesus Christ is the ultimate divine warrior and king of Israel who raged the final war against sin and evil on the cross on behalf of people of God and will deliver final destruction. See, 
We escape God's judgment. We escape God's wrath. We escape God's punishment for our sin and evil. How? By believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the mediator between God and the holy God, right? From sinful humanity and a holy God. See, look at Esther. Esther put aside her personal interest and safety, did she not? She risked her life. She risked her identity. She risked her honor and put herself and pleaded her case before the king to save her people. She is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus put aside his personal interest. He put aside his personal safety and gave up his dignity and honor and life to plead our case before God, the great king, and it is he who saved us. God deals with sin and evil. This passage reminds us of that, but it ultimately points us to Christ who has defeated sin and evil at the cross and when he rose again from the dead. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right? So God is about reversing. That helps us understand as now that as we're not to rage these holy wars on other nations, we are now in a holy war, but not against other nations, but against this, the, the, the sin that reigns within our lives, right? The people of God are no longer in a holy war against governments and nations, but we are in another holy war, a spiritual battle. Again, Karen Job says, the church of Jesus Christ replaces the army of Israel as the agency of God that wars against sin and evil in the world. And the theater of that battle has moved to the human hearts where sin and evil reside. Paul, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, says this. Explains this war, this spiritual war that we are in for the sake of our souls. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's right, not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, that's what Haman reminds us of. That's what that Saron reminds us. He says, therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, all in, withstand in the evil day. And having done all that, to stand firm, stand before, therefore, having fastened on the breast that fastened on the belt of truth, having put it on the breastplate of righteousness, and put shoes for your feet, having put on the, the readiness of the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take, on, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, that so that, to that, keep that end, alert with perseverance, making supplications for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim what the mystery of the gospel, for which I am a ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Friends, Paul is reminding us, right? We're in a spiritual battle, the battle of our hearts. And he wants us to understand how sin continues to affect us. Yes, we've been given a new destiny. Yes, we've been given a, a new position in Christ. We've been, we have the righteousness of Christ. But there is an old nature, there's this old nature that continues to rage war to have its way. To be selfish, to be pride, to be full of hate, to gossip, to be jealous, to be angry, to destroy and not to lift, to lift up. 
That is still true that, that even as we're in Christ, there's a battle for our souls. And yet, as Paul is reminding us that we have given all the resources we need to fight that battle. See, we're not called as a church anymore to rage a holy war on other nations or on our enemies. In fact, what, is, what does Jesus say? He says, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what we're to be about as we live in this world, as we fight our own sin. But we're to be about, we're, we're to have a holy war of love to our community, to our neighbors. We need to fight for that. What does Jesus say in Matthew 28, 19? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. We're about... We want to bring people into the same kingdom. We want them to be delivered from their sin and evil, like we have been delivered. We want them to come into a, a loving relationship where their destiny is no longer hell, but is in, in, into the glory of heaven, where they're, where they're not separated from God, but they're renewed with God, and they're a friend with God, and that they're a son and daughter of God. Yes, we are in a spiritual battle. But our war is not against one another. It's not against nations, but it's against Satan and his enemies. But God has given us the resources, the word of God, one another, his love, his righteousness, to fight together, to learn to love others, and to put on Christ so that the world may know the glory of the cross the power of the resurrection as we are faithfully living this gospel life may that happen why this is why i love celebrating communion because it reminds us of the cross it reminds us of what jesus has come to do he's come to deliver us from our sin he's come to make us right before him so that we can taste and see that he is good. On that night in which he betrayed, he invites all who put their faith in Christ, right? He invites us, eagerly invites us to come and to celebrate this table, to celebrate this one whose body was broken for you and for me, whose blood was shed so that you can be clean and made new. That's why we celebrate this table, to remind us and the spirits at work to do his work and sanctifying us and helping us in this spiritual battle. So let us come to this table. And let us come with great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you.